This morning we're going to move a little ahead in the Gospel of Matthew because we're going to talk about verses 15 to 21 of Matthew chapter 12 next week on Palm Sunday. It's a very appropriate passage, I think, for Palm Sunday. This morning, we're going to be in verses 22 to 37 of Matthew chapter 12. And i got to say, this is one of the most challenging passages of Scripture I have ever preached. Even as I studied this week, I was overwhelmed by the heaviness of what it is that Jesus is saying. The message here is so severe that Christ speaks to these Pharisees as he talks about what has been come to be known as the unforgivable sin. And some of you may be saying, an unforgivable sin? Isn't that impossible, Jared, to have an unforgivable sin? There's so many questions that come to mind when we hear that phrase. Doesn't that go against everything that we say or even sing? Didn't we literally just sing grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin? How is it possible that there could be a sin that that grace would not cover? And secondarily, could I commit such a sin? If I'm in Christ, is it possible to get to the point where I would commit a sin that is unforgivable? And I think the mere existence of these questions demands us to come to the text and ask for clarity. Because we don't want to run from questions like this. We don't want to, to run as if there is no answer or there's, there's no offering of understanding to what it is that Jesus said or Jesus meant. And that's why, once again, I hope we all are grateful for expository preaching, preaching that is committed to walking through the text. Listen, I don't know if I was designing a kind of topical series that I would do one on the unforgivable sin. It's not very appealing, right? I don't think the, the masses of Irving are going to be rushing in to hear about all the sins that are not forgiven, <laughs> right? It's not something we like to talk about, and yet, because it is in Scripture, it is something that we must talk about. So we're going to do that this morning. We're going to, we're going to come to the text. We're going to come and the power of the Holy Spirit asking for his help to hear the words of Christ. And the hope, I think, of three things. Number one, clarity. I do want you to understand to the best of my ability with the help of the Spirit what it is that Jesus meant when he said that the things that the Pharisees were doing were unforgivable. Secondly, I, I want us to be warned. I mean, there's a warning for us in this passage. I want us as a people of God to understand that it is possible to have a heart that is hard and to be broken and grieved over the hardness of heart that we see in the Pharisees, religious people who did not know God. And then finally, I hope that we'll come to a place of rejoicing today because what we will see this morning is the kingdom of God advancing against the kingdom of darkness. There may be a lot of things that are unclear or confusing, but one thing is abundantly clear. Jesus, as our glorious king, is building his kingdom, and there is nothing that will stand against it. And we can rejoice in that today, friends. The kingdom of God is here, and we are living in it. Praise the Lord. Here's our main point for this morning. The way I want to summarize the teaching of Jesus from Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. 
It is possible to so fully reject the work of God that you miss out on the grace of God. It is possible to so fully reject the work of God that you miss out on the grace of God. Ultimately, let's remember, the only sins that will not be forgiven are the sins that are not covered by the blood of Jesus. If you're in Christ, you are secure, you are covered. But there also seems to be a different level of transgression here in Matthew chapter 12. A different case of sin that we'll discuss today. Where Jesus tells us it is possible for a heart to be so darkened, so consumed with sin, that even if a person recognized the work of Jesus to be of God, they would reject it because they did not like what it means for them. What a heavy statement. To see that that in all likelihood, that who Christ is and what he is doing is of God, and to not like the consequence of it so much that you would reject it, choosing instead to be devoted to the kingdom of this world. So let's walk through this passage together and hear the warning of Jesus and receive it as the people of God, but also recognize it as God's grace to us. You know, when you hear something like the unforgivable sin, it can, it can perk our theological ears. And our goal today could be to only solve the problem or get the information. And there's a, certainly a hope there, again, that we receive truth well and we are given clarity by the Spirit. But remember, the, the point of today is not just to get information. The point of the day is to encounter the Word of God. So hear Him today. Let Him speak to your heart. Be challenged, but then rejoice at the work of God that we see in Jesus. Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 22. Here's what the Word of God says. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him. So that the man was fully restored, he spoke and he saw, and all the people were amazed. And they said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, another name for Satan, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And as Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom or what authority do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will also be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder goods and uh, plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin 
and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. Because as Jesus said, your words reveal your heart. As you can see, a lot of difficult theological issues in this passage. A lot of potential landmines. This story has come to be known as an objection story. And I think the best way for us to try to wrap our minds around and our, our spiritual heads around, what it is that Jesus is saying is simply to walk through the story part by part, to follow the path of the narrative and allow the narrative as it is written to, to bring clarity to our understanding. And there are basically four parts to the story that build on each other that I want us to look at. Part one, we see a miraculous healing. In verses 22 and 23, there is a miraculous healing. The story begins in a usual way for Matthew's gospel. And can we just take a moment and admit how amazing it is that a miracle like this has become commonplace in the gospel of Matthew. That a man oppressed by demons, blind and mute, is released from that bondage, fully restored and that, that's somehow just what Jesus does. That's what happens when the Son of God takes on flesh to dwell among us. That's what happens when God's kingdom begins to, to move upon the earth. That the curse of sin is being lifted moment by moment by the activity of God in Jesus. Praise be to our Lord. A demon-oppressed man. Again, both blind and mute is brought to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that he's both blind and mute. This is the only place in Matthew's gospel where this kind of ailment is found, where a person is both blind and mute. Matthew tells us it's not just from some physical abnormality that he is both blind and mute. It is a, a work of the enemy. It's spiritual demonic oppression upon him that has led him to be both blind and mute. And yet, once again, Jesus shows his unparalleled authority over both things, physical and spiritual, by speaking to this man and delivering him. Jesus does a greater work than we could have ever imagined. The people, they see this and they're amazed. And they ask the central question of the Gospel of Matthew, can this be the son of David? Can this be the, the promised king who will establish the kingdom of God forever and sit upon the throne of David? Is he the promised Messiah? And of course, we know the answer is yes. So even walking through the Gospel, it's been proven time and time again. It will be proven more and more as we move through the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. And what should our response be to this? 
as we behold the faithfulness of God incarnate, as we see God healing and advancing his kingdom in Christ. It should be worship, right? When we recognize the glory of God in Jesus, when we see these miraculous things become commonplace, shouldn't our response be to worship a God who has revealed himself to us in this way? And yet, that's not how the Pharisees responded. The crowd responds in awe, but the Pharisees respond in disdain. They don't offer a declaration of worship. They offer an evil accusation. That's the second part of our story in verses, or verse 24. Rather than declare the greatness of God and recognize him as an instrument of God and his kingdom, the Pharisees speak blasphemy, and blasphemy in its truest sense, slanderous words against God himself. The Pharisees have been accusing Jesus of blasphemy, but they're the ones, in fact, who commit blasphemy here in Matthew chapter 12. Look at what they say in verse 24. It's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. It's the power of demons that they see on display in Jesus, casting out demons. Now I want you to think about how surprising and condemning this declaration is by the Pharisees. These men have religious knowledge. The most religious knowledge probably of anybody in their time. They are seen as moral, upstanding men that should be emulated in their communities. They know the rituals. They, they know the regulations. They know the expected behaviors. They know the, the culture that has been created to, to honor God. They have the reputation among men as being godly, but it is very clear that they do not know God. And in reality, they don't know their enemy that well either. Because Satan doesn't work like this. Satan's not benevolent. Satan's not gracious. He's not gentle and lowly. He's a destroyer who wants to steal and kill, according to John chapter 10, verse 10. And it makes no sense, by the way, for Satan to come after himself. Why would a demon want to stop the work of demons. But that didn't matter to the Pharisees. They didn't like what they saw in Jesus. They didn't like how he challenged their tradition and their position. And instead of being open to a new work of God, they hardened their hearts in opposition to him. They rejected him over and over and over and over. And this leads to a stunning response from Jesus in the third part of our story. In verses 25 to 32, Jesus sees this hardening of their heart in their rejection. Somehow, even in his human form, even in his incarnate state, the Spirit has granted him supernatural knowledge of the thoughts of these men, and he rebukes them. In a serious, stunning rebuke of the Pharisees, he says essentially, not only does your response reveal ignorance about the way that the spiritual world works, it reveals something even more condemning, a heart that has been willfully closed off to the things of God. You've missed it, Jesus says. What you're seeing here is not the work of Satan, it's 
actually a work to restrain him. Look at verses 25 to 29. Again, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If, if Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How will his kingdom stand? If I cast demons out by Beelzebul, who do you cast them out by? There's so much that doesn't make sense about your accusation. But, verse 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. I want you to think about the logic of what you're saying. It makes no sense for Satan to work against Satan. He would destroy his own house. But if you were honest with yourself about what's taking place, you would recognize this is spiritual warfare. This is kingdom activity. And God is working in opposition to Satan to release this world from its oppression, to reclaim what is God's and restrain our greatest enemy, Satan himself. Now, I want you to consider what Jesus is saying here because this is, this is mind-blowing. It's, it's very important for us to understand as the people of God today. Every miraculous act, every display of Christ's authority is not just the declaration of a new kingdom and a new king. It is that, but it's also more. It's also a, a picture of a work of restraint, as Jesus, in those moments, is restraining the old kingdom and the ruler of this world, Satan. So important for us to remember. Listen, we don't just wrestle with flesh and blood, right? We wrestle with powers and, and principalities, cosmic powers that rule over this present darkness. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. And every action of Jesus that we behold in the Gospels puts greater restraint over their power and as he moves his kingdom upon the earth to establish his rule once and for all and plunder the house of his enemy. This miracle is a larger picture of the battle that Jesus is waging against Satan himself and the victory that he will secure. And to diminish that work of Jesus and his kingdom just reveals what kingdom you actually prefer. You see, the Pharisees were in bondage too. They were oppressed. They were blind. They were unable to speak the things of God. But they didn't desire to escape their blindness. And they didn't have a desire to have their tongues released from the lies of the enemy. Essentially, they had rejected God so much and so completely, his light and his truth, that they had become in their hearts unable to distinguish between what was God and what was the enemy. Their hearts were so darkened, so hardened, that they couldn't tell what was good and what was evil. How tragic. And this leads to Jesus' diagnosis of their true condition, which has led them to not only miss God, but to harden their hearts toward him. That's part four, troubling diagnosis. 
in verses 33 to 37. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, bunch of snakes. How can you speak good when you are evil? What a condemning statement. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified. And by your words you will be condemned again because of how your words reveal your heart. As with most things, most things in the Gospels, it's a heart issue that we're dealing with here. The Pharisees are bad trees, producing bad fruit, and they have no desire to become a good tree. There's a disease within them, and their words, their their blasphemy, reveals the disease. And Jesus uses the imagery of a treasure chest here. And I happen to have two of them right here. What What a coincidence. Imagine your heart, Jesus says, is like a a treasure chest. There are two kinds of hearts out there. Like these two treasure chests. And you can fill your heart with different kinds of things. Every day you have to recognize that you are teaching your heart to love something. With what you consume, with what you read, with what you watch, what you listen to, who you listen to. All those activities are teaching your heart to love something. And when your love is threatened, your heart will reveal itself through your words. So, Pharisees, what have you been filling your heart with? You've been filling it with trash, empty paint bottles, water bottle, some fork that I hope hasn't been used, as well as a mask that I hope again hasn't been used. Paper. Have you been filling your heart with the junk of this world? Or have you been filling your heart with treasure from God's kingdom? Because it seems like you've been filling your heart with the wrong stuff and all your heart, all your mouth is doing is just revealing what's in your heart. And because you've filled your heart so much with evil, because you've rejected the work of God so completely, Your words are blasphemous, blasphemous to the Son of God. If you're loving evil things, of course you will produce evil words. You have nothing else to offer. You may want to offer the things of God's kingdom, but look in your heart. There's nothing there. You can't offer in your mouth what you don't have. And yet the people have been blinded to this reality because of your position. But you do not know God. And you're confusing what is good and what is evil. And this is the main point, I think, of the teaching of the unforgivable sin. It's unforgivable because of the continued actions of the Pharisees in willingly and willfully rejecting the kingdom of God rejecting the things of God to the point where they have closed their hearts off to him and his grace. What a terrible thing to think that this is possible, that they 
had deliberately rejected the work of God despite his grace to them. And just think about for a moment of all the the access to God's grace that these Pharisees had. He had given them the scriptures. He had offered them faithful teaching, both in the people who had come before them, but also in Jesus himself. He had, he had shown them miracles in the person of Jesus. He had given them institutions and, and moments of remembrance and festival, all of these things, activities to, to remind them of God's grace and his love for them. And yet, in spite of all of that, they had rejected God. They had deliberately filled their hearts with things that were against God. And, and Jesus says this kind of willfulness, this kind of willful rejection that we are seeing in the Pharisees is extraordinary. It, there, it's a distinct level of rejection in the economy of God. Jesus makes a distinction in this, in this passage between rejecting the Son and rejecting the Spirit in verses 31 and 32. And, and, it's a little confusing. I'm not even sure I have my mind completely wrapped around it. But here's my best take on this. Look at, look at verse 31 and 32. I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, Jesus, will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So there seems to be even levels to blasphemy that reveal a, a type of diseased and rebellious heart. A distinction Jesus is making about the level of understanding that someone has about the work of God. So consider, to reject the Son, according to Jesus, implies that a person does not fully realize the identity of Christ because it's not been revealed to him yet by the Spirit. So it's not clear to them yet whether or not Jesus and the work of Jesus is of God. They've been blinded by sin and the, the powers of this world, and they, they can't yet tell whether or not what Jesus is and what he is doing is of God. So think about someone like Paul, who was Saul, and he was bred and born in a, a diligent Jewish home. And when he heard the words of Jesus, he thought they were blasphemy. This can't be of God. And so he murdered people, led charges against Christians, and yet somewhere along the way, Jesus got a hold of his heart, right? On the road to Damascus, he stopped, he beholds the glory of God, the scales fall off of his eyes, and his heart is turned and transformed. There was an ignorance there that, that God says will be forgiven. Because as he was made aware that Jesus was of God, he humbled himself and responded in faith. But that's not what the Pharisees are doing here. There's a different level of rejection. They have rejected the grace of God over and over again, even as they recognize through the work of the Spirit that in all likelihood what they are seeing is of God. And yet, despite what they are seeing, and despite what the Holy Spirit is evidencing to them, that Jesus is of God, they so don't want to be part of that and humble themselves and respond in faith that they reject him and they actually accredit that work to Satan. 
rather than God himself. Think about the audacity of that. I'm seeing something that I know from the scriptures is of God. And the spirit is is evidencing for me is of God. And yet I so don't want it because of what it means for me that I'm gonna reject it and not only reject it, but willfully tell people it's of Satan because of what it means for me if I say it's of God. Guys, that's a different level of callousness of heart that comes from rejection after rejection after rejection of filling your heart with the wrong things to the point where you can no longer distinguish good and evil. This is what P.H. David, a theologian, says about this particular sin, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This sin is not just any serious moral failure or even persistence in sin. It's not insulting or rejecting Jesus or God due to ignorance or rebellion. It is the willful and conscious rejection of God's activity and then its attribution to the devil. The person who does this is not ignorant, but chooses to reject God and to call God the devil. There's nothing more that can be said to such a person, nor any miracle or evidence that would help him repent. So what came from their mouth was no joke. It was no laughing matter. It was no careless statement. It was a declaration of willful rejection that would lead to their ultimate condemnation along with Satan himself. What a sobering moment for us as God's people. Now, I don't want you to be overly concerned with whether or not you could commit this sin and be cut off because, honestly, if you were concerned at all, it would be evidence that you're not like the Pharisees. In fact, David says, by definition, no one who worries over committing this sin could have done it. For it rules out a troubled conscience. Instead, it stands as a severe warning to those who know God's truth to not turn from it or abandon their faith. So praise the Lord that we're in Christ. We can't commit this kind of sin to lead us to a place where we reject his kingdom and then consequently be rejected from his kingdom. But it is a moment for us to consider and to be broken over the fact that someone who has been exposed to the grace of God could so dislike, disdain what it is that they're seeing that they would reject God and his grace and then call that grace a work of Satan. It's it's hard to believe that it's possible. And yet we see the evidence of this all around us as what is good is called evil and what is evil is called good. For us, as the people of God, witnessing the work of Christ on display, let's strive to have humble uh, humble hearts that speak of the glory of God and and direct others to it, having our eyes open and our, our, our mouth loosened. Let's truly see who Jesus is and let's submit our hearts to him in humility and let's declare with our mouths the glory of God for all the world to hear because that is the mark of someone who has truly experienced the forgiveness that is available in Jesus. That is the mark of someone 
who has stepped into the kingdom of God, freed from the oppression of the enemy. Because of a touch or a word from the word of God himself, Jesus Christ. And there's no better response to this passage than that. How then should we respond? How do we, as God's people, let our lives be affected by what it is that Jesus is speaking to us here? I want to offer just four responses for us today. To think about and consider from this very heavy, theologically weighty passage. The first response, I think, is a a moment of reflection before the Lord, asking the Spirit to search our hearts. Now, again, I'm not trying to cause confusion here because I don't think if you're even desirous of reflection in this moment that you are in the place where the Pharisees were, but it is possible for you to fill your heart with the wrong thing, right? It's possible to, to mix a little bit of this treasure and this treasure or vice versa, right? To where we dilute the treasure and the things of God by putting trash in it. And occasionally, some of that trash will come out, even if our heart is ultimately loyal to Jesus and the things of God. So let me ask you some questions as you reflect before the Lord this morning. What does your heart reveal? Someone who is religious or transformed? Isn't it scary, the example of the Pharisees here? that everyone thought they were the best, most religious people, and yet they were furthest from the heart of God. I don't care how much you come to church. I don't care how much you give to the church. I don't care how many good things you do. I don't care what other people say about you. I want to know what God says about you. What does your heart say? Do you love Jesus above all other things, or do you love other stuff? Where are you storing up treasures? What are you exposing your heart to? And let me ask you this question. What do your words reveal? What, what when it is challenged? When, when it is, what when it's possibly taken away do you react against and speak out about? Because that's going to show what you really love. So what's going on in your heart? And how has it shown up in your words? Let's spend some time as the people of God just reflecting upon that to make sure that our, our hearts are as pure as they can be. That we are doing the work and the power of the Spirit to make the tree good. And to get out the disease from the bad tree. But not only should we reflect, I think we should probably repent. As you reflect, some of these things are true of your life, you should definitely repent of that. But let me also say this, some of you need to repent because you're still in oppression. You've never stepped into the kingdom of God. Some of you today may be the demon-oppressed man, and let's not forget him, right? I mean, that's, that's the miracle. There was an oppressed man who was blind, he couldn't speak, Jesus spoke to him, and he healed him. He was fully restored. Maybe some of you today need to be fully restored. Maybe you are lost in your sin. And you don't know who to turn to. 
By God's grace, you're here today and you've been brought to Jesus. Would you ask him to heal you and restore you? Would you repent and believe in Jesus to salvation today? Confessing with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. God, I want you to hear me. The only person that can set you free is Jesus. And he wants to set you free. Will you repent today? Humble your heart. See Jesus for who he is. Acknowledge that he is of God and let him save you. Then thirdly, we get to rest. If you are in Christ, I want you to hear me this morning, you can't kick yourself out of Christ. The unforgivable sin is not a situation where you want forgiveness and you can't get it. Don't listen to that. No. These people did not want forgiveness. They had so closed themselves off to the grace of God that they had removed themselves from being able to experience it. If you desire the grace of God and you humble yourself and you ask for forgiveness, he, he wants to pour out his grace upon you. And if you've done that in salvation, you can't lose it because who holds you? You are God. Who, who orchestrated your salvation? You are God. Jesus did, right? And the same one who saves you is the same one who will sustain you, so you rest in that. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about sin in your life. You should be. You should repent as you do reflection. But never let it call into question your salvation if you are truly in Jesus. The very fact that you are aware of the sin and, and broken over it is evidence of the work of the Spirit in your life. Respond to that. And finally, we should rejoice. Rejoice because the victory of Jesus is secure and the evidence is growing. I think actually this probably is the main point of the passage. That the kingdom of God is advancing in Christ. And we need to recognize that as the people of God. Remember verses 28 and 29. If by the Spirit of God I cast out demons, and can we all agree that Jesus is doing this by the Spirit of God and not demons? Right? If that's true, then the kingdom of God has come. Let me say that again. The kingdom of God has come. Will come? Has come. Maybe will come? Has come. The work of Jesus is evidence that the kingdom of God is here. And here's what that means. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he indeed may plunder his house. Not only is the kingdom of God here, the kingdom of the enemy is being restrained. Satan is restrained. He is being more restrained. And one day Jesus will come and finish that work. Satan will be cast away for all of eternity and we will step into the presence of God enjoying our eternal life for all time. We get to taste it now as the kingdom advances awaiting the day when it will be fully established. And what we're seeing in the gospel is evidence of that truth. It's not a work of Satan. No, Satan is being restrained because of the authority of Christ. And let me just remind us, who is that authority you've been given to? The church. 
That's why we have the work of building the kingdom of God. That's why we have to recognize what Jesus has done and to give him glory for it. The kingdom is here. The enemy is being restrained. And victory is coming. That's something we can celebrate. Wherever you are, would you bow your head? Spend some time before the Lord asking him to help you know how to respond. This incredible story. Where are you today? You want to do some reflection? What's your heart say? What do your words reveal about your heart? Where are you storing up treasure? Maybe you need to repent today because you've been storing up treasure in the wrong place. Maybe you need to repent today because you're lost. And you've been turning to every place but Christ. And today the Spirit has revealed to you the work of God in Jesus and you want to give your life to him. Maybe you need to rest. You've got sin in your life. You've been worrying about whether you've done something unforgivable. If you desire forgiveness and you ask God for forgiveness, there's no sin you could commit that is beyond the reach of God's grace. He wants to pour out his grace upon you. Would you rest in that today? And he will hold you. And then would you rejoice? The kingdom of God is here. And it is advancing. And that one day our king will come to establish that kingdom forever. Father, I pray that in our time together today, we were able to have clarity over this passage. That our hearts were receptive to the warning of Jesus. But that ultimately, we were left in a place of rejoicing because of the comfort and security that we have in Christ and the evidence of his work in us. Father, we want to be faithful as people that you've released from oppression to see your activity and to speak of your glory to acknowledge when something's of God and to declare that it is of God. Regardless of what it costs us because of the immeasurable gain we have received in Jesus. And Father, may we pray and have our hearts broken for those who are rejecting Jesus. They would not come to a place like the Pharisees where they would so willingly reject the work of God as to close themselves off from your grace. Help us, Father, to to show them Jesus, to, to be used by the Spirit, to show your work in him and lead them to salvation, we pray. Because we want to see your kingdom advance, person by person, to the ends of the earth and the ends of the age. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.